Good morning, everyone. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 5. We will be in chapter 5 of the book of Numbers. As we read through, I'll indicate what verses we'll be reading so that you can follow along. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, we read this. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now an aspect of the book of Numbers is that the law is interwoven into the text. There are narrative portions, there are poetry, there are prophecies, and there is law. And this law is an important aspect of the book. We can't just skip over it. We can't just ignore it. Why? Well, because ultimately it points us to Christ. And in each point of the law, we can see how Christ has fulfilled it. He hasn't abolished it. He hasn't set it aside. So we can't ignore it. Rather, the law must now be read and it must now be understood as the fulfilled and accomplished work of Christ. And so we must turn our attention to the laws found in chapter 5 of Numbers and remember that as we read them, that they are to point us to the work of Christ. So if you would look down starting in verse 1 of chapter 5 of the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. Verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord. For the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement, with which atonement is made for him. Verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, If a man lies with her sexually and is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. Verse 19. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, 
And if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Verse 29. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, Or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. This is God's holy word for his people. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit that in Your light we may see light, that in Your truth we might find freedom, and in Your will discover Your peace. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It takes just one kid to mess up a game. You remember that kid in elementary school, or maybe you were that kid. Everyone's playing kickball, having a good time, and here he comes, the chaos maker, the agitator, the one who decides it would be fun not to kick the ball when it's his turn, but rather to pick the ball up and run for it. And then the whole thing devolves into a completely different game with no rules except get the kid and get the ball back. As a kid, I hated the chaos. I just wanted everyone to play by the rules. No mulligans in mini-golf. No double dribbling in basketball. Please, let's read the rules before we start Monopoly instead of making them up as we go along. No chaos allowed. But all it took was one troublemaker to send the whole system into chaos. One grain of sand in the gears to send everything out of whack. Now... For the first four chapters of the book of Numbers, the Lord has been establishing an order. He has been laying out how the camp of the Israelites will be arranged and how the tabernacle will be cared for and carried and how we are to worship Him. He has been giving Israel the rules of how life will function in a community where He is present. And if everyone would just play by the rules, this trip to Canaan would go nice and smoothly. No problems. Everyone get in your place, do your thing, respect the organization that God has enacted. But anyone who has read ahead in the book of Numbers knows that chaos is coming. There will be agitators. There will be the chaos makers that throw a wrench in the whole system. And when chaos comes, it's our natural reaction to try to control it. 
to try and bring things back in line. We try to herd the cats. We try to get all the marbles back into the bag. We try to control other people through threats or manipulation or anger to end the confusion and get the order back. But whether we are talking about the playground, our home, our work, or the church, our attempts to control others rarely returns peace to the group. In reality, our reactions often cause more chaos, more confusion, more strife. In our passage for this morning, what we see is that the Lord knows that there will be chaos coming to the camp. So God's people, instead of taking matters into their own hands, must trust God to restore order. They must trust that the Lord will deal with the chaos that sin brings to the world. In chapter 5, there are three laws given each addressing different aspects of chaos that will disrupt the peace of the community. The first law deals with the chaos that death brings. The second is the chaos of transgressions. And the third is the chaos of broken relationships. Many of us have gotten to a point where the chaos of sin threatens to undo us. And maybe even this morning, In your life, the order and the peace that you had has been thrown into such disorder that you see no way out. And you are frantically trying to restore order to your life. But there's no way forward. There's no way that order will be restored unless we trust the Lord to deal with the chaos sin causes by the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the more that we discover about biology, the more we have come to see the intricate order of life. Without organization and fine-tuning of a master creator, life just could not exist. Each and every single human being from the point of conception to the moment that they die have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Life is order. Now, once I left a banana in the car under a seat for a few weeks. You'll see where I'm going with this. And anyone who has done this knows that when a banana begins to rot, the internal structure of the banana begins to fall apart. Right? First it gets a little mushy. Then it gets a little soggy. And eventually what happens It liquefies. It turns into black goo. The moment that something dies, the order of life begins to fall apart. Death is the end of life's order. Death is chaos. Life is order. And in verses 1 through 4 of our text, the Lord is teaching His people that He will deal with the disorder that is brought by death. Look again at verse 2. There we read, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact 
with the dead. Now, it's very tempting to look at this law and believe that it is primarily a public health regulation. We don't want people spreading leprosy or other diseases that they might get from touching somebody who has died. But the primary purpose is not public health. It is public holiness. Each of these issues that are unclean relate to death and the effects of death on the body. But the Lord is present in the camp and the Lord is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of order. And when the signs of death begin to appear, they have to be expelled from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord cannot abide with death. You see, there was no death prior to sin. When sin entered the world, then death came into God's creation order. For as we know, the wages of sin is death. And ever since sin entered God's creation order, it has been bringing the chaos of corruption. That is, the chaos of decay and rot. And so we read in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation is longing and groaning to be set free from its bondage to corruption. What does that mean? Well, it means in some way, bananas don't want to turn to black goo. It means that animals don't want to die. It means that skin disease and death are not natural, but they are signs that we are in bondage to death. The effects of the fall are so much more than sinful actions. It's not less than sinful actions. But the reason that the world is falling apart all around us, the reason that is unraveling at the seams, the reason that entropy exists as a law in this broken world is because sin brought death and death brought chaos to the order of God's creation. And each of us carries around in our own bodies the signs of our bondage to death. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but sin has marred the wonder of our creation so that we are in bondage to corruption. Because of sin, our bodies will die and they will decay. And we try to control the chaos of corruption. We try to avoid death and disease. We run away in fear believing that we can control it, but we can't. We can delay it maybe for a while, but you didn't get to make the decision when you were born that you would die. It's just the reality. We will all one day be carried outside the camp because of our bondage to death and decay. It cannot come into the presence of the life in order of God. The chaos of death must be expelled from the order of God's life. But the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see, we could not do anything to control the chaos of corruption 
We could not come into the presence of God because we are all made unholy by our bondage to death. Therefore, Jesus came to where we are. He came outside the gate. He went outside the camp to set us free from the bondage of our death. He went into the grave itself. And then Jesus overcame death by the power of His indestructible life. And one day He will return and He will raise our bodies from the dead. He will undo all the decay. He will undo all the destruction. And He will bring us back into the presence of God. For we know that in the final hour, God will dwell with us. And we will be His people. And God Himself will be our God. And He will be with us. And He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. You see, sin has brought the chaos of death into the camp. And so it must be expelled out of the camp. But in Christ, the grace of God has come to meet us outside of the camp and has restored the order of life that we might be returned into the camp and dwell with God forever. The next section of chapter 5 deals with the chaos of transgressions. That is the disorder that is brought when we sin against one another. When sin enters the community, it's like pulling the thread on a sweater. As you pull on it, the whole thing just seems to unravel. You keep pulling it, you're trying to undo it, you're trying to make it better, but eventually it just causes the whole thing to fall apart. You feel like you have your life well put together. And then sin enters the picture and all the order of your life seems to fall apart. Abuse, addiction... Adultery, theft, violence, a random cell phone ringing. (laughs) Just seems to throw everything off. And as we continue in the book of Numbers, we'll see what happens when sin enters the community. Yet before the congregation begins its journey, the Lord displays to them how He will restore order in the wake of sin's chaos. In verses 5 through 10, there is a law given to explain the order of God's grace to forgive sin. You see, when we enter the chaos of sin, we try to deal with it through threat our anger. We become vigilantes. We want to go out and we want to end it. When someone gets out of line, we try to bully him back into line. If someone sins against us, we want to sin against him. We want to deal with the chaos of sin through vengeance and control. But here we are taught that we must trust the Lord to restore order after the chaos of sin. The first thing that we must understand is that sin is primarily directed against the Lord. While you might be the victim, while it might be be your money that was stolen, the primary problem with sin is that it is against God. Look at verse 6 of our text. Look how it describes sin. It says, when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit 
by breaking faith with the Lord. Sin is breaking faith with the Lord. Therefore, it has to be dealt with before the Lord. Sin is rebellion against the order of God's holiness. And therefore, it is the Lord that, to the Lord that vengeance belongs. It is the Lord that we must trust to deal with sin. And here He lays out how He will deal with sin in our lives. Three things we see in this process. First, there must be confession. We must begin with repentance. We must repent of our sin. Second, there must be restitution. If we have sinned against another person, we must do whatever we can in our ability to make it right. If we have stolen, we must restore plus 20% whatever we stole. While sin is primarily against God, the human victims of our sin must receive justice. And so often, I think as Christians, we miss this point. We want to... Skip. We repent and we believe. And that is good. But we also must understand that in the process of forgiveness, if we have sinned against another, we must seek to bring restitution to them. And the third thing that we see is that to restore order after transgression, there must be atonement. There is repentance. There is restitution. And there is atonement. You see, a ram is to be offered so that the guilt of sin would be covered. The word atonement means the shedding of blood to cover the guilt of an offense. Death is the curse that we all live under because of sin. Yet the Lord in His grace offers a substitute whose blood will atone for our sin. Yet we know that this ram was a sign of the true atoning sacrifice to come. For the blood of bulls and goats and rams could not truly deal with sin, but they all pointed forward, as the book of Hebrews tells us, they all pointed forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. As the hymn proclaims, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, to restore order after sin, we must trust the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. We can't turn to our own power of control over other people or even over ourselves. But rather, we must trust in the power of Christ's blood. For it is by His blood alone that the sinner will be forgiven and the order of God's holiness restored in our lives. We must trust the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to restore order after sin. Now the third law that we come to in chapter 5 is called the test for adultery. And it describes how Israel was to deal with a situation where a husband suspects that his wife has cheated on him, but has no evidence. You see, in most cultures at the time, it would have been the husband's prerogative just to divorce his wife if he suspected something was off. If he got jealous, he had the right just to send her away. But as so many of the laws we find in God's Word, 
This law was designed to protect the one who was socially weaker. You see, this law was designed to give protection to the wife so that the husband could not just divorce her based upon his own jealous feelings. A few points to be made. One is the order of authority. In verses 19 and 20, we see explained that the wife is under her husband's authority. There is spiritual authority of headship in the marriage. But the next thing that we need to see is that the husband, though he does have spiritual authority, must place authority in the hands of the Lord. Look at verse 29 and following. It says, this is the law in the case of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord. Outwardly, setting her before the Lord means that she will go through a ritual in which she will declare a curse over herself if she has indeed committed adultery. If she is innocent, nothing will happen. But if she is guilty, then she will become barren. It's important to note that this doesn't happen through magic. The Lord alone is the one who knows the truth. And so it is to Him alone who can enact the curse against one who has committed adultery. But if she is innocent, she has been protected from the jealousy of of her husband. Inwardly setting his wife before the Lord means that the husband must give authority over to God and trust the Lord to enact justice. His emotions are not a good means by which to determine the status of his relationship with his wife. He is jealous. He is not thinking clearly. And so he must not seek to restore his own relationship, but he must place his marriage before the Lord and trust that God will do what is right. And anyone who has done marriage counseling knows that there is nothing more chaotic than family relationships. You want it to be black and white. You want, you want to look and you say, okay, this person's right and this person is wrong. This person is the one to blame and this is the person that's innocent. The husband is completely neglectful and the wife is completely in line, so it's his fault. Or the wife is completely manipulative and the husband's all right. But it never is like that. It's always complicated. It's always both of them sinning against each other. And what the Word of the Lord is teaching us is that to restore order in our relationships, we must trust His authority to change people, not ours. You look at your spouse. You look at your child. And you think, I can change them. I can determine what is wrong with them and I can make it right. I can reward or punish it out of them. Our relationship is not good right now. But if only they would do what I say, then things will get better. But then, they don't. So you get frustrated. And you get angry. And you get jealous. And you get hopeless. Do you have a spouse that you feel alienated from? 
Do you have a child that you cannot seem to control? Is there a relationship that seems to make everything in your life feel out of control? And you have said to yourself, you know, I can never trust them again. I can never forgive them. They'll never change. There's no path forward. Then you need to set them before the Lord. You need to realize that while there are times for you to exercise your God-given authority in people's lives, there are other times when you need to place them in the hands of the Lord and in prayer hand them over to God and allow Him to restore the order of our relationships. You see, this law is so powerful because it it does not just point to a husband and a wife, but to the Lord and His people. You see, Israel is over and over again described as the wayward wife. She has broken faith with the Lord. She has gone astray and has been alienated from God. But in Christ, the adulterous wife has been brought back. She has been forgiven. She has been restored. For Christ laid down His life to wash and to purify His bride. To remove the curse that has been spoken over her. The curse of breaking faith with the Lord. And He has reconciled His people to God. Restoring the order of our relationship through His own death. You see, if you want order restored to your life, you must turn to Christ. And trust Him to bring order out of the chaos. This past November, my sister got me a Rubik's Cube for my birthday. And when you take it out of the box, all the colors are arranged and ordered perfectly. The white squares are together, the blue, the orange, the red, the green, the yellow. They are all where they're supposed to be. And I took that thing out and I mixed it all up. And I started to put it back together and I worked and I worked and I looked online and I tried to follow all the directions and finally I just got annoyed with it. Now I know that there are some of you that could put that thing back together in 30 seconds. But for me, restoring the order to that stupid thing just wasn't going to (laughs) happen. And so now it just sits in a drawer In our house. And so often we can feel like our lives are like that Rubik's Cube. The order has been so disrupted that we don't feel like we will ever get things back where they're supposed to be. It's all mixed up. But what our text for this morning is showing us is that the Lord Himself will come and restore order to us. For Christ Himself entered into the chaos of death and brought back the order of life. Christ entered into the chaos of sin and brought forth righteousness. And Christ entered the chaos of alienation and brought forth reconciliation so that we who have been separated from God by our chaos might, be, might come into the order of His presence again through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.
O God, who has sounded in our ears your divine and saving words, enlighten the souls of us sinners to the full understanding of what has been spoken, that we may be not only hearers of spiritual words, but also doers of good works, following in faith a life of holiness and grace and order through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.